We come this morning to the story that is known as the greatest story ever told. It is the story of the crucifixion of Jesus, the centerpiece, the turning point of all of history. Our text that we'll be reading this morning comes from John chapter 19, verses 17 through 42. Or those of you who like details, it would be John 17, John 19, verses 16, part C. Uh, but you'd figure it out even if you're not detailed. So it means we're adding a few words that somebody numbered in the middle of a sentence. John 19. Hear the word of God. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for uh, the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews, which I always find rather ironic in their unbelief. They actually more clarified what Jesus has been saying, I am Yahweh, King of the Jews. That's not in your text, but that's all right. Well, picking up in verse 22, Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, Jesus said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and then of the other who had been crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he, had, he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you also 
may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been buried, had been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. The word of our God. Let's go to him. The Lord in prayer. Holy God, we come to the story that is indeed great and greatest, because it is the story of what you have done to secure a people for yourself. It's a familiar story for many, and therefore it's easy for us to gloss over. But I pray that you would work and teach by your Spirit this morning, impressing upon us that which you would have us to know, to be reminded, to be renewed, and to be reformed, transformed, to become like Jesus. Lord, we pray to you, for you alone are able to do that. All of our intellectual capacities and efforts alone cannot do what you would have done. You have promised that the Spirit dwells within all who believe. The Spirit is at work. Your word never comes back empty. So we pray with great hope in your promise that we, your people, might be transformed as individuals and as a church to the glory of the grace that you have given us in Jesus. In whom we pray. Amen. It had been 35, maybe even... 40-some years. But probably a day hadn't gone by when he didn't think of the details of that day. How could he ever forget the agony of those three hours standing there with the mother of Jesus, one of the three men who had been lifted up to be crucified. She goes through the pain of watching her son tortured, hated, and ultimately dying. And only a few feet away from standing there helpless with that suffering mother, soldiers callously and coldly and playfully were dividing up the clothes of this man. When they came to the best piece, recognizing that they didn't want it torn, they said, let's gamble, let's shoot dice, or more specifically, let's, let's cast lots, and that way somebody will go away with the prize. How could he ever forget the words that Jesus spoke from the cross? They, there were relative few of them. Words that he now more fully understood after the resurrection, and the gift of the Holy Spirit, and years of prayerful, contemplation. And now John sits down with pen to put it to parchment. 
to write down the things that he saw and heard that day and to sit down and to write out all the things that he saw and learned during three years of Jesus' public ministry to which John was privy, an insider, saw it all. And really only a couple of pages later, there's not a whole lot left of what John has written. John writes this so that we understand what was going through his head when he sat down to put the pen down. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. So John is recording everything detailing it for us. Not so much to get it off of his chest, not just to put it out there, but very intentionally that whoever is to read it and to hear it in the days and the years to come, that they might believe in the things that had taken place, particularly on that day. And therefore, in believing, have life in Jesus. The question before us this morning is, what is it that John wanted us to see? Not just in general, but particularly about that day we now call Good Friday. And I think the first thing we need to see, and it's quite evident in what John writes, is this, is that John wants us to see that it, it all really happened. Verse 35, he tells us that, because here's what John writes in, in the text that we read, verse 35. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth, that you also may believe. This is the purpose for which John is writing. He's, he's writing this. He's testifying, look, I was there. I saw everything, everything that I'm writing. It happened. This is the truth. And you know, whether you believe it or not, I know that I'm telling the truth. I know that it is truth. Everything that I am writing to you happened. And he wants those who would be his readers to know that he was there, to know that he was an eyewitness, to give him the, the credence, not only him, but all of the gospel writers, uh, since John was the last one to write his gospel account of, of the four that, we ha- uh, that, that, uh, that God has given to us. And that we would not only know the details, but that we would believe what happened. Now, some look at the fact that there are four different accounts, and there are details that are different in each of the accounts, and John's seemingly having the, the most difference in detail. And they, they look at that, and that becomes a reason for them to be suspicious of the story in the first place. And they couldn't get their act together to tell the exact same story with the exact same details. And, and if that's a, a, an issue for you, I, I certainly can understand that. But I would challenge you to do something that, uh, that you probably do on a regular basis anyway, without even giving any thought. There are a number of things that have been in the news uh, living in Virginia this past couple of weeks. It certainly is not boring, is it? And so pick up the Daily Press and the Rich- Richmond Times-Dispatch and the Washington Post. Read the accounts of the stories and see if it's exactly the same. I mean, unless it's the same guy who's syndicated by all the papers, in which case my illustration is moot here. But... Um, and even then, somebody will probably edit it. But the reality is we recognize that we go to the different sources because, not because they're telling different stories necessarily, but because we're getting a fuller picture, more details as to what is going on. The fact that there are different accounts of what Jesus has experienced here, 
is not an indication that they couldn't get their acts together. It's an indication that there was no collusion, that they were not getting together and saying, okay, how are we going to tell the story? Every one of them giving the independent recollection of their, uh, their memory, every one of them correct, every one of them giving details, corroborating one another and then adding to it. That's what we have here. And John is, is writing to us and he's saying, I was there, I saw it, believe me. And in believing, not just me, but believing what I tell you, then you, are to ha you have life. Perhaps part of the motivation that John had at this point is that even this early, still in the first century, there are groups that came up and were distorting the reality of what had happened. Now, from the very beginning, there was this plot claiming that Jesus didn't die, the disciples came, and, but that was pretty easily refuted. By this time in history, when John is writing a group known as the Docetists, which you probably don't need to remember, uh, but that's what they were called. They, they believed in, in, in a sense that, that Jesus was God and that Jesus had come and Jesus had taught. But to sympathize with them, they, they also recognized the absolute ridiculousness of some of the things that are being claimed. I mean, first of all, God isn't a man and God doesn't die. And so how can these things that are being testified be true? And they still wanted to believe in Jesus. And so they came up with this idea that Jesus only appeared to be a man and come in the flesh, and that he only appeared to die and therefore only appeared to resurrect. He actually had not come in the flesh, but he was God somehow manifesting. I don't know if it's an early hologram. I get, there, I get the reasons for their question. I get the rational rationality in which they're trying to process. I don't know what gave them the answers they came to. And I know that what they came to is different than everyone who was intimately involved and differently than God has revealed to us. Because there were people that were making that denial, John saying, no, 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 I was real, I was there. And everything that we've told you, everything that you've heard that has happened, it happened. And Jesus, even though God is God and the Spirit is not a man, Jesus is fully man and fully God. And even in this account of the crucifixion, we see evidences that John builds into the story. Not to prove that point, but it proves itself. For instance, as we look at this passage and the fact that John tells us about Jesus speaking to his mother and then to him, a woman, you know, go with John, with John, John, and John taking her in. It's an indication that Jesus had a mother. Fictional people or imaginary people don't have mothers. It takes us back to the story of the incarnation and to the manger where Mary, who was there testifying and certainly aware of things, would say, no, it was a very real birth, as any of you ladies would probably say. Don't tell me it was imaginary because those were real pain. And it's an indication that, like all fully human, Jesus had a mother. John also tells us that Jesus says he was coming near his end on the cross, declared, I thirst. And it makes sense. 
It's not like the Romans during the time of his arrest until this time uh, toward the end of his crucifixion had been castrating him as if he was a guest. Can I get you anything? You thirsty? Tea? Milk? Beer? You know, I, I don't know what. He probably hadn't had anything to drink for hours and hours. And yet he'd been asked to talk, to defend himself. And then he'd been hanging on the cross as midday sun was approaching any of us would be dehydrated. And he says, I thirst, which is an indication that he is human, that he is fully man. Even after that, after John tells us that Jesus said he thirsts, and even after Jesus had already died, we're given another indication that he is fully man. We're told that the Jews, in in a really warped way, they wanted to get their murder over quickly so that they didn't break any of their moral rules. And since it was soon going to be, you know, Sabbath, so let's get this show on the road. So they asked the Romans to do something the Romans would often do after they were tired of hanging around. And it's an indication of what crucifixion was like in the first place. But as they were nailed uh, or bound to this, to the crosses, um, what basically happened, they would hang and they would lose breath because they're hanging in in such a way that the the air would come out. And so in order to get the breath, they would push up with their legs, even if they were nailed. So that itself was excruciating. But by pushing up on their legs, they were able to get a breath and continue to breathe. And that would go on. They'd go up and down, up and down for hours and even sometimes days. And then just imagine you're already dehydrated, so the cramping that must have been taking place in them to add to the pain and the torture that's going on. But when the Romans had had enough, they would go and say, look, we want to get this over with. And they would go and they would break the legs and they could no longer push themselves up. And the person on the cross would ultimately suffocate. And the Jews had said, look, we want to get this over with. And so the Romans said, no problem. So they went and they broke the legs of the man on the right and broke the legs of the man on the left. And they got to Jesus and they found that he was already dead. And they were a little surprised. He had died. He's a strong man, but he had died. And yet, as a validation of the fact that he was dead, they took the spear and they stuffed him spiked him, pierced him in the side, and outflowed bodily fluids that come only out of human, not out of imaginary people that only appear to be there on the cross. It's a testimony that he was truly man. And even the burial that we're told about is an indication that he was fully man, and not an imaginary man. See, these two Jewish religious leaders, both very wealthy men, they went and they took his body and they handled a dead body, actually becoming ritually impure for themselves, but indication of the love that they had. But they now, who were not part of the inner 12, they were now holding the dead body, moving it, and then preparing it, and then burying it. And so you have people that were on the periphery that recognized that he was dead, and only true humans can die. Imaginary people don't die. And only true bodies are prepared for burial and only true bodies are are buried. And so even all of these accounts, John is woven in and saying to those who doubt the reality of Jesus' existence, I saw him. He is fully man. And yet in no way is he denying. In fact, he's reinforcing because John is writing this after the resurrection and he claims all of the miracles that have taken place. They've seen the power of God demonstrated in him. And even at the beginning, before John gets into the details of the crucifixion, we hear testimony, begrudgingly, 
even in the mockery of Pilate, king of the Jews. And, he's, and then the religious leaders saying he's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be son of God. He's claiming to be deity. You know, so let everybody know he's just claiming that. And, and it's evident there because the irony is what they are rejecting is the reality. He is God who has come in the flesh. And both Matthew and Mark testify to that by the experience of one of the centurions. John doesn't talk about it. But after Jesus died, this unbeliever, pagan Roman, looks and says, he really was God. He really is deity. Testified throughout this crucifixion scene, we see what that Jesus is fully man, fully God. Theologians call that the hypostatic union, and that he's, he's both, without mixture, without confusion. It's hard to understand, or if you understand it, good luck, explain it to me in a way that I can get. I only know that this is what God has revealed through those who knew him, through those who were here. And John demonstrates that clearly in this particular passage. We see other evidences of Jesus being God in the passage as well. John writes in verse 28 that Jesus knew, and it's not just that he knew kind of what would come next, but the indication is most scholars say, you know, he, he knew everything. He knew the whole circumstance because it was exactly what he was shooting for. And even after he declared it is finished, the way John writes it is Jesus, he laid down his head. He gave up his spirit. Nobody took his life from him. He laid it down, even as he testified that he would. Because he, being God, is in control of everything. And so it seems very clear that John wants us to know that Jesus was no victim. That he wasn't um, someone who just experienced the, the tragic end to the whims of fickle people corrupt religious system and indifferent Roman culture. That he is God who is in control. He's not to be pitied, he's to be worshipped. And that's important for us to recognize and John, John is showing us that because even in our day, now there's certainly people that would be contemporary docetists and you know, make the claim, but we don't really hear people saying, well, he just kind of... The, the, the historicity of the person of Jesus is really not much in question by scholars anywhere. But what we do here is doubt about the death, the resurrection, and his deity. We hear it not only in the academy, but we hear it in many, too many churches who without denying the reality, they diminish the importance of it by claiming that the only thing that really matters is that it shows that God will love you to death. It's metaphorical. If you get that, then that's the only thing that matters. It's the example for us. And so whether you believe that Jesus died or rose again, and they diminish the whole thing, and John here is passionately and saying, I'm writing these things so that you know exactly what would happen, and that you will believe that he who is man, God is also man, man who is God, he's God and man in one person, and he gave his life up, and if you believe, then you will have life. And John wants us to know all of this really happened. 
Not only does John want us to know that it really happened, he wants us to know that it was all part of the plan from the very beginning. All of the Old Testament points to this particular moment. Genesis 3.15, God's response to our parents rebelling against him. Now they're out of the garden. What hope do they have? The first thing that he's told is that there will come one, one day, who will crush the enemy who has brought sin into the world or tempted them into the sin that they are now experiencing. That his heel would be bruised, but even in the bruising of the heel, that same heel would crush the head of the one who has bruised it. And so it's a metaphor for here Jesus is being bruised as he's, he's being bitten by death, but in his death he actually crushes the enemy of humanity because he's defeated sin and death by dying on our behalf. The whole sacrificial system throughout the Old Testament points to this one time. It was put in place to point to the time when God would provide the one perfect sacrifice, the spotless lamb. So all the sacrifices offered, everybody knew that they were inadequate, and that's why they were repeated year after year. They were sufficient for the moment, but pointed to something that is greater, and they were hoping that that one that was greater, and that is in this moment, as Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, gave up his own life for us. And that's why we see so many references in this narrative to Old Testament passages. John is showing us throughout this is that this is not circumstantial. This is the plan from the very beginning. And Jesus fulfills a number of prophecies that we see. In verses 23 and 24, when they are dividing the clothes, we read immediately after that, at the end of verse 24, this was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they will divide my garments among them for my clothing, they will cast lots. It's, the, it's, it's found in Psalm 22, which is a psalm about the, the promised Messiah. And that was being fulfilled around them by people who would certainly not be cooperating with any disciples. We see in verse 28 his statement, I thirst, and then John puts parenthetically for us, that statement fulfills scripture from Psalm 69. It was a very real human thirst, but it was also the fulfillment, and Jesus knew that is what John tells us. In verses 32 and 33, the whole account of the not breaking the legs. John then elaborates for us a little bit in a verse that, is, that follows there in verse 36. He says, For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And he's referring there to Psalm 34, prophecy of the Messiah, that even though he, you know, he has come and he's he dying, his bones will not be broken. And so providentially there, though Jesus, they came to break his bones, they didn't break his bones. Verse 34, we're told about his side being pierced. John elaborates on that in verse 37 as well. And he says, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced, which is from Zechariah 12. And I suspect it also brings to mind uh, and fulfills uh, from Isaiah 53 that he will be pierced for our transgressions. And then even the burial. These two wealthy men who take the body, they prepare it. And we're given incredible detail about the ointments that are there. I mean, you know, he didn't say a lot. He says about 75 pounds. I don't know how, make, how much makeup weighs, but that sounds like a lot to me. 
and scholars who know what they're talking about on these things indicate that this is not normal, that only the very, very wealthy could afford this. And really, this is an amount that really suggests royalty. That's, this is what you would expect for somebody who is royally being prepared for a royal burial. And, and then the grave in the garden that's brand new, and it's owned by, you know, probably Joseph Arimathea, but it's owned by a rich guy. He didn't buy it for this purpose. He bought it for his own family because it was going to be someplace for a rich people's cemetery. And yet Jesus is put in there, and that itself, we are told, fulfills a prophecy that Isaiah 53 tells us, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man at his death. All throughout this, John is revealing to us the details of what really took place, what it really happened, but it was fulfilling that which was the plan from the very beginning. And over and over, John wants us to see that. Crucifixion is not a random tragedy. It's God's plan to demonstrate the love that he has for his people. And finally, and perhaps mostly, what I think John wants us to see is not just that it all really happened and that it was all part of the plan, but I think John wants us to see it is finished. The final words that Jesus utters on the cross. John brings that out very much. He wants us to see that Jesus had completed his mission. When Jesus died, we are told the Greek word is tetelestai, or tetelestai, and it means it is finished, it is completed. And Jesus declared that not probably as somebody who you might imagine would be just kind of, it's finished, I give up, I quit. I think we need to read that more like you know, those of you who have seen Braveheart and William Wallace at the end, even though he's beaten and battered and has nothing left in him, he uses the last of the strength within his body to declare freedom. And what Jesus declared at this point in Tetelestai, it is finished is not a concession. It is a victory cry to everybody, to those who believe it is hope, to those who don't believe should change their diapers. The question is, what was accomplished? What was finished? First and at the most basic level, we need to recognize what is finished is Christ's obedience. Jesus had run his race, he had finished his course, and he had scored a perfect ten. He had come and been in the flesh, tempted in every way as we are, and yet without sin. He was perfect. There was nothing left for him to do. He was perfect in obedience in every aspect of the law. He was perfect even in the temptation. Only hours before in the garden, we have given a peek by the gospel writers and say that Jesus, who was sweating blood, he was under so much stress and temptation, he's offering up his prayer as any human would do and saying, Father, if there's any other way, let's go with plan B. Nevertheless, not what my will, not what my flesh is willing, your will. So he, he felt what we would feel, but what he wanted more than to be relieved is to do the will of God to the point of agony and to the point of death. He had been perfect in his obedience. And now when he says it's finished, there's nothing more to obey. He'd been perfectly obedient. When Jesus declared it is finished, he also is telling us that he completed the revelation of the Father. 
If you remember, it wasn't long before this, only a few hours earlier, that Thomas had said to Jesus, Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. In other words, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell within Jesus. And therefore, if you want to know what God is like, there is a sense in which God reveals himself throughout all the Old Testament by through his laws and his commands and his interaction with his people. But he has fully shown himself in the person of Jesus. And so that when Jesus thinks, speaks, acts, feels, does, it's exactly what God the Father is like. And we see the fullness of God in the person of Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying. And when it is finished, he's saying, there's nothing more that you need to know. I've revealed everything that God wants you to know, that you need to know about what God is like. And sometimes we need to stop and think about, well, what does that say to us? What are, what are our thoughts about it? Because of what we see in Jesus. A.W. Tozer, I think, wisely said this, what comes into our minds when we, think about, when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And if the most important thing about us is what we think about God, our thoughts of God should be what we see in the person of Jesus. Jesus had finished the revelation when he laid down his life, gave up his spirit. I think most significantly is that Jesus crying out, it is finished. It is completed. He had completed redemption. He was the sacrifice that was offered once for all time. There is nothing more to add. There is no more sacrifice. And for us, practically speaking, that means there's no more bargaining. I don't know about you, actually. I do know about you. I just don't know your specifics. But just think of when we're in difficult times and the prayer, Lord, I'll do, just get me, you know, and I don't know what you bargain, but almost all of us do it one way or another. And in one sense, it's okay. I mean, we're sharing what's on our heart, but there's nothing that we can do. There's nothing we need to do. It's all completed in Jesus. He finished it. He's the perfect sacrifice, sacrificed once for all. And there's nothing that we can add to it, and there's nothing that we should be able to add to it, and any idea that we can add to it or that we need to add to it isn't just addition. It's not an AFLAC policy that, you know, you have your primary care, but, you know, what can it hurt to have additional care? It actually devalues, defaces what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, it continues to have the same value, but it robs us of the value and therefore of the potential joy and freedom that we have in Christ. What do I mean by that? I shared the story a few years ago, but it still is pertinent, I think, and certainly to today. Some of you may remember a few years ago um, at Muscarillo Museum, they had Da Vinci, uh, some of his early sketches were, uh, were, were held, housed or whatever they do in the museum. And so Carolyn and I went because, you know, I was curious. And with my artistic expertise and sophistication, I looked at them and quite frankly, I was unimpressed. It's like stick figures, you know, I mean, what's the big deal? I've, I've seen other things Da Vinci had done. This didn't seem to measure up. 
So now just imagine for a moment that having seen the Da Vinci stuff clearly wasn't completed. I mean, it wasn't that impressive. I pull out my Sharpie and then decide, let's fill this in. Let's try to make it kind of like, you know, it's supposed to look like. What would happen? Well, I'd be arrested, and rightly so. And now some of you would say, well, you know, you've already admitted you have no artistic ability, and so anything you do is going to deface it. And that part's true, so we'll go another direction. We have a number of people in this church who are incredible artists. So let's say one of you who are talented, as opposed to us no talent people. You went over there, and you pulled out your Sharpies, and you decided to do it, and you can actually make it look like one of his completed works. Do you think the curator's gonna say, thank you, because that's what's been lacking? No, the police are gonna put you in the car right next to me. And the policemen, when they're riding off, they're gonna look in the rearview mirror and they're gonna look at the two people thinking that we're idiots and say, you do not improve on the work of the master. And that's exactly what it is important for us to understand when Jesus says, it is finished. Anything that we think that we're going to add is not going to help anything. It defaces, it devalues, and it robs us, and it robs anybody who thinks that we're testifying truly of the fullness of the power and the majesty of the work of the Master, Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice who gave himself, that simply by believing, which is probably where it's hard for us, we have life, the life that we really of God, these things are written that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the promised Messiah, the Lamb of God, and that through believing we have that life. I understand why it's hard even for us who do believe, to believe. Even the idea of all these prophecies, it's fascinating, but I've got to tell you, here's one of the problems that I have. I have no depth perception when it comes to history that far back. The cross is 2,000 years ago. I'm thankful for it, but 2,000 years sounds like a lot of time to me. The prophecies, some of which are hundreds and 1,000 years before that, so that's like 3,000 years ago, and I am impressed with even 1,000 years. In my mind, I can't tell you the difference between 2,000 and 3,000. I just know it's a numerical issue, and I have no emotional and mental appreciation for that. And I only know about these things because they were all in this book when I got it, and they all came at the same time. And so I have no chronological depth perception that makes me in awe for that. And there's all sorts of things like that that make the cross seem too far away. Not that we don't believe it, but we have less appreciation for it because we live with it and want it to be as present. But that which took place then, once for all, is the hope. And all we are to do is believe and then grow in our depth. We never move beyond simply believing. We believe, we grow deeper into it, and then he promises to bear fruit through us. That's the life. And that's how we glorify God. Not by believing and moving on, but by believing and going deeper and seeing him at work in us, transforming us to be like Christ, meaning the character of God is through us and joy no matter the circumstances. That's what John is writing for us to experience. So I just finish with the same thing that John begins with. And while the pilot and the religious leaders said it mockingly, it is the chant that we declare. People of God, behold your king. Father, we pray with thanksgiving for this account and all that has been done. We pray that you would grant us faith to believe, faith to grow deeper, 
faith, through trust, and the joy that accompanies it. Bless us, even in this simple message, by the details that are awesome, by those that may go past us, but root us deeply into the person of Jesus, our King. Amen. Before we move to the song of the